unforeseen. But lots of things can be predicted. Lots of things can be anticipated with great confidence. It will rain, it will get cold, it will get dark, and so we need to be ready for those things when they come. We need a roof, we need a heater, we need lights. When you have advanced warning, you use it to be ready for what's coming. And in our passage for this morning from 1 John, we're going to see that John is reminding his readers of what's going to happen in the future so that they can be prepared now. The plan here is to think together about the passage that Heidi just read for us, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. But it's a bit artificial to just think about those verses. Uh, the passage that we're looking at today is really part of a, a larger point that John is making. So remember, in the big picture, John is giving his readers a way to evaluate themselves and others with respect to their claim to be a genuine follower of Jesus. The church that he's writing to had recently experienced a split. False teachers had been plaguing the church, and they had gone out from the church, leaving the congregation confused and wounded. And so John is writing in part to give them tools that they can use to evaluate what is proper teaching, to evaluate who really is a follower of Jesus. His larger point that we saw last week is that these deceivers, these false teachers, they never really were Christians. And that's why they left. Their, their departure from the true faith made that clear. John has wanted the church to see that if someone's life is not characterized by love, by the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, even by personal holiness, John has said that individual is not to be trusted. They are a liar. The truth is not in them. That's what we've been covering over the first two chapters. And if you look at uh, our passage, or if you have your Bible open, you'll see that in chapter 2, verse 28, the apostle is transitioning now to focus in on that last issue that I mentioned, a person's individual, personal righteousness. John chapter 2, verse 28, really down to, to chapter 3, verse 10, represents a, a meditation on what it means for us to live as God's children in terms of our relationship to sin and unrighteousness. And in this sort of larger section, he's going to talk about something that's happened in the past. He's going to talk about something that's true now and also something that's going to take place in the future. And John does that in reverse chronological order. He talks about the future, he talks about the present, and then he talks about the past. Now that section from chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 10, it is kind of one thought, but it's a lot to cover, uh, and we have a members meeting, and there's football this afternoon, so instead of a two and a half hour sermon, I thought what I would do is just break it up in half. Uh, today we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 3. So we're going to cover those first two things that John's talking about, something that's going to happen in the future and something that's true now. Next week, Lord willing, we'll think about what John tells us has happened in the past. And because this is really all one unit of thought, I'm going to leave a few ideas in our passage for this morning unmined. Uh, a few things that would be great to talk about, Lord willing, we'll have a chance to talk about uh, when we pick this thought up next week. So our outline for this morning is going to be the first two things that John talks about. Uh, something that's true right now, and something that's going to happen in the future. So I want to start with what John tells us is true of us right now. If you look there at the beginning of chapter 3, 
in verse 1 to the beginning of verse 2. We, we read this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. So you see, John wants to talk with us about our status as believers, the status that believers enjoy in relationship to God the Father. And specifically, John says, we are his children. You see that there in verse 1. He says that we should be called children of God. But it's not just that we should be called children of God. It's not just that we can be referred to that way. That's actually true of us. So there in verse 1, he says, and so we are. Again, in verse 2, he says it, we are God's children. And then he, then he adds a now, right? This is a, a current state of affairs. This isn't something off in the future. It's not something that used to be true. John says, we are God's children now. If you are in Christ, you are one of God's children. Okay, now what does that mean? Well, if you step back and look at the bigger picture, there is a, a very limited sense in which we can say that all human beings are God's children. So in Acts chapter 17, verses 28 to 29, the Apostle Paul says that we all, all human beings, are God's offspring. So he is our creator. He is our sustainer. And so all human beings, in a sense, are his children in the sense that they come from him. But that's not the sense that John's using that word. It's not, that's not what John wants to talk about this morning. That doesn't mean that we're in a close and loving relationship with him, just because we are his offspring in the sort of general way that Paul mentions there in Acts 17, just because he is our creator. Naturally, as we are on our own, the Bible doesn't say that we are God's children. It doesn't say that God is our father. Instead, it uses words and phrases like enemies of God. Naturally, on our own, the Bible says we are dead in our sin. We are enslaved to it. We are futile in our thinking. We are alienated from God. In fact, when the Bible talks about us being children... It tells us actually that all mankind, we're not children of God, but as Paul says in Ephesians 2.3, we are children of wrath. That is to say, we, we are children of God's righteous anger against our sin. In our sin, we do not relate to God as our father. We are not like his children. In our sin, we don't want God to be our father. We resist his authority. We live for ourselves. We want nothing to do with him. And so on our own, we relate to God not as a child relates to a loving father, but we relate to God like a traitor relates to a king or a criminal relates to a judge. We, we relate to him like a debtor in default relates to his banker. But there is good news. And it's that good news that John wants to tell us about this morning. In his love... God the Father was not content to allow that state of affairs to stand. And so he's done what is necessary for us 
dead in our sins, children of wrath, traitors, alienated, futile in our minds. He's done what is necessary for us to be brought into his family as children, as objects of his love and affection. This is what John's talking about here in 1 John chapter 3. God the Father sent his Son, the Lord Jesus, to take on human flesh in order to save us, in order to bring us into God's family. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly Father, and he gave up his life on the cross as a substitute in our place. He died there as a sacrifice, paying the price for our sin and rebellion. There on the cross, Jesus, the perfect son, the faithful son, he was treated as we deserved. He was treated as if he were the traitor, as if he were the sinner, as if he were the rebel. And he was treated that way so that you and I could be treated the way that he deserves, like faithful children of our heavenly father. Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And now anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in him is adopted into God's family immediately. John says, now. This is what we read about earlier in our service when Marty read to us from John chapter 1. We read there, if you remember, in verses 12 and 13. John writes this about Jesus. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see what John's saying? Anyone who receives Jesus, and he defines that there in the very next phrase as believing in his name. To that person, Jesus gives a right. Not a right that they deserve, but a right that he's earned for them as the perfect and pleasing Son of God. And the, the right that Jesus gives to anyone who will receive him, believe in his name, is the right to become a child of God. John says that that's not something that happens because of our will or because of the flesh, but rather it's something that, that has its origin in the will of God. It's something that he has initiated, something that he does, something that he accomplishes. So we who have trusted in Jesus have become children of God. And think about that image. Think about what it means to be God's child. It means that if you are in Christ, God looks on you as his beloved, precious son or daughter. Look, if you have amazing parents here and now in this life, if your parents are or were loving and kind and patient and generous and wise and admirable and noble people, well, the good news is that in Christ, you have an even greater father in heaven, a father whose love and knowledge and wisdom and strength knows no limits. You have a father who's always with you and always is working for your benefit. And if your experience of having parents in this life has been more negative, if your parents are or, or were immature and selfish and harsh, and foolish, and abusive, well, then the good news for you is that in Christ, as painful as your experience may have been, in Christ, 
you haven't missed out on the real thing. You have the best father imaginable. You will spend eternity in the most wonderful, most loving family ever. And this idea that you are God's child, it also means that you have an incredible inheritance coming to you. The Bible speaks of our being God's children and our inheritance together very often. Imagine you're an orphan and you're adopted into a very wealthy family. Not only are all your needs met here and now, but you are set well into the future. When you're brought into a a family as a child, when you're adopted in, you are made an heir. You are cut into the inheritance. You begin to share in all that the family has. The family's wealth becomes your wealth. And so the Bible speaks of us as God's children, as heirs. And we're not looking to inherit cash or, or real estate. We're not interested here in gold and silver. We have an inheritance that's actually far better than that, right? We value money so much because we can use it to get nice things and to take care of ourselves. But our inheritance, according to the Bible, is God himself. A relationship with him as our father for all eternity, right? Our inheritance that we have as God's children is the certainty that the one who is the origin of all beauty All comfort, all joy loves us and will provide for us everything we need for all eternity. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. When John tells us here that we are God's children. He is pointing us to this marvelous work of our triune God. God the Father is the one who has set his love on us and sent Jesus to bring us into his family. God the Son took on human flesh. He suffered for us. He he died for us. He rose for us so that we could be forgiven and welcomed into God's family. He died to take away everything that kept us away. And God the Spirit, Paul calls him the spirit of adoption, causes us to be born again, assures us that we can call the Father our own and that we are his beloved children. So John tells us here that's what we are now. We are God's children. (coughs) And there seem to be two things about that truth that he really wants to press home to us. First, He says, because we are God's children, we will be strangers in this world. Look there at the end of verse 1. So after telling us that we are God's children, he writes this. He says, the reason why the world did not know us is that it did not know him. The world did not know him. That is Jesus, the one who came. When God's son came in the flesh... The world, the the wider world, did not receive him, did not recognize him for who he is, did not celebrate him. Again, remember what we read earlier about Jesus in John chapter 1 in verse 11. He came to his own, that is the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. 
But again, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John sees the world divided into two groups, those who do not receive Jesus and those who do, those who believe in his name. And those two categories of people, they cut across every line, every ethnic line, every gender and socioeconomic line, even the line of natural family. Those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, are given the right to be called children of God. And those who don't, John says, they don't know him. And brothers and sisters, what John is saying here is that because we are with him, because we are with Jesus, because we are in his family, because we're spiritually connected to him, because we're, he, he's our older brother, we have the same father, he says if the world doesn't know him, they won't know us either. That is to say, the world outside these doors doesn't look at us and think, wow, those people have it together. Those people must be the children of God. They are the most blessed, happy people of all. To the world, we might seem delusional, organizing our lives around Jesus, when we could be building our brand, accumulating money and power and comfort. To them, we might seem absurdly prudish, striving to live in ways that are pleasing to our Heavenly Father, rather than cashing in on all that this world can offer in terms of carnal pleasures before we die. So Christian, if you feel out of step with the world around you, if you feel like the people in your office or your neighborhood, or even in your own family, don't understand, don't embrace your faith in Christ, remember that that could very well be because you are God's child. Don't be surprised when you have trouble. Take comfort when the world doesn't know you, knowing that God has bestowed on you the greatest gift imaginable. He has made you his child. That's the first thing John wants to show us. Because we're God's children, the world won't know us. The second thing he wants us to see from our identity as God's children is just how great the Father's love for us must be. That's the thrust of chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, John says, that we should be called children of God. That phrase that he uses there, what kind of love, it has a more literal sense of something like, from what country is this love? It's almost like John saying, what planet does this kind of love come from? Right? He, he's just saying how amazing, how extraordinary, how unlike anything else we know, that God would look at helpless rebels like us, that he would take convicted criminals like us, hopeless sinners like us, and not merely forgive us, not, not hire us to do a good job, not offer to tolerate our presence for all eternity. Now John says, what planet does this love come from that the Father shows? That he would take people like us and bring us into his family. So that we're at the dinner table on Thanksgiving. We're there on Christmas morning when the family's opening presents. God loves us like that. He wants us in. He's going to cut us into the inheritance. He's going to lavish us with every good gift 
like a father lavishes good gifts on his children. Who does that, John asks, unless they love extraordinarily? Christian, it's perhaps impossible to overstate how much God the Father loves you. Remember, he didn't adopt you into his family because you are so amazing. No, he adopted you into his family because he's so amazing. Because his love is so great. His love is so wonderful that it actually doesn't need a lovely object. God doesn't need you to be worthy of his love in order to love you. And so you can relax. You qualify for this program. In his love... God sent his son. That was the cost of your adoption. Loving you like this, making a rebel like you into a child, meant that Jesus had to come and suffer and die. But still, God the Father sent him. That's how much he loves you. The great Puritan author John Owen calls this the great discovery of the gospel, that God the Father loves you like this. And Christian, if you don't believe this, you're not going to delight in him the way that you should. Your relationship with God is going to be shriveled and withered. You aren't going to want to, to spend time with him, to hear from him in his word, to speak to him in prayer, to sing his praises. Right? No one likes to spend time with people who barely tolerate them. No one likes to be around people who are perpetually disappointed with them. No one wants to sort of make a point to, to spend time with someone who might withdraw their love at any moment, at the slightest provocation. Yet I fear that's how many of us think about God the Father. That, that he, he sent his son, and he never anticipated that we would take him up on this offer. And so now we're there and he's stuck with us because he said he would, he would bring anyone who believes in Jesus into his family. But, but friend, that, nothing could be further from the truth. God doesn't barely tolerate us. He's not perpetually disappointed with you. He knew what you were going to be like and he loved you and sent his son to die for you anyway. And he said he will never take his love away. If you don't believe that your heavenly father loves you, you're not going to enjoy being his child very much. And so John wants us to revel in the love of God the Father, the love that he has shown to us in making us his children. The English theologian J.I. Packer once wrote this. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. See what love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are now. So that's our first point. That's what's true of us right now. Uh, second thing we want to see this morning is what John tells us about what is going to happen in the future. And look there in verse 28. John writes, And now 
little children. So that's his way of addressing the church. It's a, a, a tender and affectionate way to speak to them. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So John speaks there in verse 28 of a future time, a time when he appears, a time, John says, of his coming. If you look down at chapter 3, verse 2, again, he speaks of a time when he appears. John is focusing our attention here on a future date when Jesus, that's the him, that's the he, will return to earth from heaven. The word that John uses there at the end of verse 28 that's translated at his coming, it's the Greek word parousia. It's a word that was used commonly in those days to describe the visit of a great king or a leader. This was a cause of celebration. This was something that would basically kick off festivities in a town. This is something that the citizenry would prepare for so they could properly welcome and mark the arrival of the dignitary. Right, think about it, if there's a, a big visit, a big event happening, right? There's a, perhaps a, a, a presidential convention or a visit from the Pope or a Taylor Swift concert, right? You have to be ready. You have to get the citizenry engaged. You have to prepare for the coming. You have to have the key to the city ready to give to somebody, right? You don't want to be ashamed by being unprepared. John mentions that there in verse 28. You want to have confidence when that person shows up, as John says there in verse 28, because you're ready for them, because you've been preparing, because you've been living in expectation of this grand arrival. John says that's what the coming of Jesus will be like. It will be like the coming of a great king. Throughout the New Testament, we are taught that Jesus will return to earth from heaven. So Jesus often spoke of his return. You can find many examples in the Gospels, but just one in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31. Jesus here, referring to himself as the Son of Man, says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. After his resurrection, uh, Jesus ascended into heaven. The disciples who witnessed that were gawking, and two angels said to them, Men of Galilee, this is Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The author of Hebrews tells us so Christ. This is Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, that's what he did the first time he came, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And the Apostle Paul himself in Titus chapter 2 wrote to his protege that we as Christians are, he says, waiting for our blessed hope. What is that hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when John, here in John chapter 2, talks about Jesus' coming, or when he appears, this is what he's talking about. 
At some point in the future, Jesus will return from heaven to judge the world, to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. John assumes that his readers already know that. He doesn't doesn't give any indication that he thinks he's sort of dropping new information on them. In fact, he points them to two other things that they also know in this passage. There in verse 29, he says, if you know that he is righteous, again, speaking of Jesus, right? The idea here is not that there's a possibility that they don't know that Jesus is righteous. Rather, it's something they're sure of. Jesus is going to return. There in verse 29, he says, basically, you know that this Jesus is righteous. There in verse 2 of chapter 3, he tells them another thing that they know. He says, we know that when he appears, so when Jesus returns, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So when you put all the data here in our passage together, here's what you see. Jesus is coming back. The Jesus who is coming back is perfectly righteous. And when Jesus comes back, we get to see him. John says we will see him as he is. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed that the Father would allow the disciples to see his glory. Paul told the Corinthian church about the return of Christ In 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then on that day when Jesus returns, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You see, the sight of Jesus as he really is, the sight that we will have of him, when he returns, when we see him in his glory, John says here that it will have the effect of transforming us. He says we shall be like him because we see him as he is. There in verse 2, John says, right now we are the children of God. And he says there in verse 2 that as wonderful as that is, we're still not what we will be on that day. Because on that day when Jesus returns, we will see him. And the sight of him in his glory, in his righteousness, in his purity, will transform us. John says we will be made like him. This is not to say that we'll be made divine. This is not to say that we will be as glorious as Jesus or that we will be worshipped by all creation the way Jesus is. No, John says you will be like him. And what he's referring to is you will be righteous as he is righteous. Right? That's what he says there in verse 29. You know that he is righteous. And you're going to be like him when you see him as he is. Christian, this is one of the great promises This is the great hope that we have as God's children. We have been brought into the family of God, and we are being transformed into the image of his son. One day, that work will be finished, and we will be like him. We will be righteous. So Paul wrote to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, speaking of God the Father, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son 
in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, God's electing, predestining love was set on you so that you might one day be conformed to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus, so that he, you one day might look like him in holiness and righteousness, so that Jesus will be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. As God's children, we are being made, we are being conformed to the, the image of our big brother, the Lord Jesus himself. Now look, if you do not love God, if you don't love righteousness, if you don't long to be free from sin and temptation, then this won't make any sense to you. This won't seem like good news to you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have received him, if you've believed in his name and been adopted into God's family, you will hear the promise of what God has begun in you and what he promises to complete in you, right? That one day you will no longer have to do battle with selfishness and laziness and anger and lust. You'll hear God's promise that one day there will be no more anxiety, no more depression, no more disease, no more tears. One day you will no longer accidentally hurt people. You will no longer fail people because you lack wisdom. You will no longer offend people because you lack self-control. All because you've finally seen Jesus as he really is, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, loving, and pure. You will be made like him. If you can see that, Perhaps your, your soul could rejoice this morning. You are not what you one day will be. But you are God's child now, and you will certainly be like him one day. Free from sin. Righteous like he is righteous. There in verse 3, John applies all of this not just to the way we feel, but also to the way that we live and Lord willing, we'll have a lot of time to talk about this next week. But remember at the outset, we said if you know what's coming, you need to be prepared. That's what the Bible is doing for us here. The fact that Jesus is returning, it is not a penguin walking down the aisle. It is not a surprise. It is not a plot twist. It's the sun rising in the east. And so the point here, the reason why John is reminding us of this truth, the reason why the Bible speaks of it so often is so that we can be prepared. So that as he says there in verse 28, we face that day with confidence and not disgrace. Well, what does it look like to be prepared then? John tells us in verse 3 of chapter 3. He says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who thus hopes in him. That is to say, everyone whose hope is set on that future day when Jesus returns. Everyone who longs to be like him in terms of righteousness. Everyone who can't wait to see him as he is. All of those people, John says, will now purify themselves. 
The idea of purity is one that we encountered a lot in the book of Leviticus. It has the sense of being spotless, clean, uh, un unspoiled, without blemish. And here, John's idea is that if we have this hope, it's not something we sort of file away on a shelf and, and pick up when Jesus returns. Right? It's not like a retirement account savings that, that you might know it's there, but really you're in your early 30s, and so it doesn't have anything to do with the way you live today. No, John says we live now in light of that future reality. We live now preparing for that day. John says we purify ourselves in light of the fact that we will one day be perfectly and completely pure and righteous like Jesus. That hope makes us want to get a head start on it. That hope makes us want to sort of inject that future reality into our Monday morning. The love of God the Father, the love that he showed to us in sending his son to die for us and to rise for us. The love that he shows in adopting us and bringing us into his family. The love that he will show when Jesus returns and we are transformed into what we will be. That love, John says, when you've really tasted it, when you've set your hope on it, when you've experienced it, it doesn't make you lazy and complacent and indifferent towards your sin. No, John's saying, again, this is the point he's going to make in our passage for next week, Lord willing. No one who's drunk deeply from that life-giving water of God's grace can then remain indifferent to their sin. This promise that we have of future purity, future righteousness, it's going to embolden us. It's going to energize us to spring into action now, to purify ourselves today. This isn't something, John says, we just sit back and let God do for us. It's not something we receive purely as a gift the way we receive our adoption. Now, when it comes to our growth in holiness, God is at work purifying us, but we are also called to work and to strive. And brothers and sisters, that means that we look to the future coming of Christ and we respond in part by fighting against sin now. We respond by looking honestly at the places where impurity has found safe harbor in our lives. We respond now by looking at the circumstances in which we are prone to sexual immorality or drunkenness or crude speech. We respond now by, by pulling back the curtain on anger and selfishness and fear that threaten our relationships. Right? All of those things are characteristic of impurity. They're the opposite of what we will be when we see him as he is. Does the blood of Christ cleanse us from all of those things? Yes. Does the love of God in Christ save us from the penalty and punishment that we deserve for all of those things? Yes and amen. But that doesn't make us complacent. That makes us hate our sin. That makes us hate the impurity that remains. It makes us strive more and more with God's help to grow more and more in purity until that day when he appears. It makes us willing to get help when necessary. So brothers and sisters, stop and think. You claim to be a follower of Christ. Is there anything in you that wants to be more pure? Does the hope of being changed at the coming of Christ fill you with joy? If so, 
Can you identify something in your life that you need to address? A way that you can strive to purify yourself now, even as you await that final purification at Jesus' return. This is in part what the church is for. We are a hope society. We We are people who gather every Sunday morning with our eyes on the horizon. We are people who look to that day and are trying to live our lives now in light of it. And so we help one another to put away sin. We help one another to grow more and more into conformity to his image. We help one another to purify ourselves as he is pure. So Christian, make sure someone else in the church knows how you're struggling with sin. Make sure someone else in the church knows how you need help and how you need prayer as you seek to purify yourself. As John says there in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If he's righteous and you're adopted into his family and you're a child of his father, if you're born of him and if he's coming back and you'll be righteous on that day, if all those things are true, why would you not commit yourself to righteousness and purity now. Those things that are true in the future will break through in your life now at some point. So brothers and sisters, God has done a wonderful thing for us, something that we get to enjoy right now. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, applied to us by his Holy Spirit, God the Father has made us his sons and daughters. He has adopted us into his family. He's made us heirs of every good thing. And God has promised to do a wonderful thing in the future. He is going to send Jesus back. And on that day, we will see him as he is. And we will uh, will be with him when he appears. And we will be like him in holiness and righteousness. And so what do we do now? We purify ourselves as Jesus is pure. We rejoice in the Father's love for us. And we, as John says there in verse 28, abide in him. We remain in him so that we can have confidence when he comes. The good news is we don't have to be very creative. We don't have to figure out some special way to do that. God's actually given us everything we need in his word, in prayer, in song, in our fellowship together, and especially in the Lord's Supper. Here, as we come to the table, we come confessing our sins, acknowledging our impurity, stoking our longing to be made like him when we see him as he is. We turn from our sin. We rejoice in the Father's great love for us, demonstrated in the broken body and the shed blood of his Son. And here we abide in him. We remain in him. We continue on in him, looking forward with confidence to the day when he returns and we see him as he is. And so, brothers and sisters, let's pray together and let's come to the Lord's table. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we confess we're guilty of calling you Father just out of rote habit without stopping to reflect on the incredible love that is loaded into that name. 
that you would have us call you our Father, that you would give us your Spirit to convince us of your love and to lead us to cry out to you, Abba, Father, that you would give your perfect, pleasing Son so that we could be your sons and daughters. Father, we are in awe of your love. We pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to believe that you love us as much as you do so that we would be filled with hope and delight and joy. Father, by your Spirit, would you help us to live with our eyes on the horizon, with our feet planted in the truth of our adoption now and our eyes set on the future certain return of the Lord Jesus. Father, we long to be like him. We long to see him as he is. And so we pray that you would help us now to purify ourselves and to abide in him. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.